Hello, John Terrell here. Pull a chair up to the fireside at Chateau Cube, where we discuss life, limited magic, and cube draft. Our guest today is Dan, whom you might know as Sir Funchalot. Dan is one of the founders of the MTG Cube brainstorming Discord server, which is a community where I am often to be found, chatting about design or posting pictures of my cats. Dan also writes long-form, spirited, and sometimes contentious posts on the MTG Cube subreddit. And he is co-host of the MTG Cube Cats podcast with Alden, aka Building a Deck. Sir Funchalot is a diehard spike, a devoted min-maxer, and a pitiless murderer of bad cards. He is also a friend and valued colleague whom I am delighted to welcome to Chateau Cube. Well, to begin with, Dan, how would you describe yourself in a tweet? Okay, well, first of all, stay the hell away from Twitter. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) The website is absolute cesspool on the internet, but I am passionate about game design, cube design in particular, magic and card games, a nerd, and a metalhead. What's up, dudes? A nerd and a metalhead. That's awesome. You've mentioned you've got experience with all sorts of different card games. I mean, you've got a long track record with Hearthstone now, too. Yeah, I've definitely made the rounds. What are some of the things about magic in specific that attract you to this card game or to cube design broadly? So magic has obviously one of the longest histories of just sort of existing as a card game. And with that large back catalog of content comes a lot of different options to you as a player. So all the constructed formats are fairly deep. There's lots of room for innovation, fine tuning your deck to a metagame. And when it comes to cube design, you just have this huge, huge back catalog of tens of thousands of cards, most of which are trash, (laughs) that you can play with and sort of craft really meticulously crafted environments around. So if you want to build a format where, say, what's like a goofy card, wood elemental is like the best threat Uh in the entire cube, uh, I guess you could probably do that with cube, whereas really... Every other game's never going to end. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Um, But with most other card games, that's just not an option you have. There's not like a cube analog in something like Hearthstone or any of the other digital card games. They're just PvP sort of constructed formats only. So that's something that's just very unique to Magic. So Magic has this really broad library, deep library. And you also mentioned all of the formats that exist in Magic. Something that attends that is the amount of content that has been produced about magic over many years now. And people have uh, done a lot of great theorizing about it. I know you and I have talked about Patrick Chapin uh, before and his uh, next level deck building and these sorts of books he's written, which are awesome. Do you think that all of the uh, work that's already gone into theorizing magic is something that is helpful, that's liberating work that you can build on, or does that constrict your ability to think in novel ways about magic in some way? I don't really think it restricts how I think about magic. 
I think it's expanded my understanding of the game. And then with that more profound and nuanced understanding of what works successfully in games of Magic and why, that I'm able to then apply those lessons to my own constructed decks when I'm playing in a constructed format, when I'm drafting a retail limited set, and especially when I'm designing my own cubes. What are some similarities or differences between how one goes about making a deck for a constructed format and how one goes about constructing a cube environment? Seems like using Patrick Chapin's Next Level Deck Building, where he is talking largely about constructed environments, one might think that that's not going to map on in a particularly direct way to the experience of building a a cube. So it does to a certain extent. The sort of lessons that Patrick Chapin or Mike Flores or any of these other titans of magic gameplay theory have already written about is that their lessons you can apply to pretty much all constructed formats. And cube is sort of like this halfway point between limited and constructed, right? You're not playing usually with like wind drakes and giant spiders. You're playing with like Jace the Mind Sculptors and Thrun the Last Troll. Yeah. More traditional like unpowered formats. And you're able to push the power level of the decks that come out of your limited format much higher to the point where these sorts of constructed theories can map on to the decks that come out of your cube. And you can use those theories to design your format to make those decks better, more consistent, more powerful. And I think that's pretty cool. Right. You can take these macro archetypes and try to reverse engineer your environment, your cube environment, to make sure that you're supporting uh, one's ability to draft those macro archetypes. What would you say to somebody who suggests that in their environment, nobody drafts aggro, nobody in their playgroup likes aggro, why support aggro at all? Why not get rid of all of the red one drops or white one drops in the, in the cube? To that person, I would say, you know your playgroup better than I know your playgroup. And if you and your friends have tried aggro in Constructed, and you really just do not like it, then that's totally a viable option to you, is removing the aggro pillar from your format. Obviously, there's going to be some balance ramifications from that. If your combo or control decks aren't being aggressively pressured by these linear proactive strategies, they can become a little bit too dominant. But if that's not like a concern of yours, that sort of metagame imbalance, then like, yeah, go ahead, cut mono red. I might be a little remiss if I would ever draft your cube, but chances are I won't, unfortunately. So go ahead and you do you. So you cube a lot, more than a lot of us get to cube, I know, um, even a couple of times a week, I guess. Is that is that true? You and your play group get together? Yeah. Uh, obviously, the current state of world affairs has made that a little more difficult. Uh, meeting in person is yeah. no longer really an option for us. But uh, recently, we've been trying to draft online a little more, and that's uh, that's been nice. But yeah, we, we, we try to draft pretty often. Yeah, you, you draft a lot. People in your group have cubes as well, it sounds like. So yeah. 
you get to try all sorts of different formats. And I'm sure you have people who are experimenting with all different kinds of things. That's awesome. Yeah, it definitely gives us a nice uh, variety whenever we sit down to draft. What sorts of information do you try to collect when you're drafting? And how do you use that information that you're collecting? I do try and collect win rate data. So I want to have somewhat of a, an idea as to how my macro archetypes are interacting with one another. Obviously, there's a huge margin of error with this data, and it's not super conclusive, but we play fairly regularly. We're all reasonably experienced magic players. We can intuit a lot of issues if they ever become really apparent. But really, the big concern for me is cultivating interactive gameplay, and I want to reduce the amount of non-games. So if a card gets played and is just completely and utterly unbeatable in a particular matchup, that's going to be something that is more concerning to me than necessarily blue-green aggro went 0-3 on today's draft. Like, that's not a big concern. Don't don't draft blue-green aggro. That's not a that's not a real deck in my cube. That doesn't yeah, that doesn't <laughs> sound like a thing. Yeah. If you're trying to attack with your Lanowar elves as though they're aggressive one drops, you have you have done the wrong. So, how do you feel about adding solutions to your environment for particular problems that might be introduced by adding a card that looks unbeatable? Can we just jam a few more naturalizes and disenchants into the cube to solve some problematic enchantment or whatever the thing is? I tend not to do that. I'm not really a big fan of draw-dependent gameplay, so I tend not to want to play very many cards that demand immediate answers early in the game or else the game is decided. So yes, I could cube a card like Winter Orb and several versions of Disenchant to give control decks access to a card to answer the resolved Winter Orb, but the way that game plays out is the aggressive player plays the Winter Orb, and now the control player has to have drafted, have main decked, and have drawn their disenchant to resolve it. And to me, that feels like a fairly low agency decision on behalf of the control player. Uh, it's asking for a fairly narrow, specific answer to a narrow and specific problem. And I tend to curate so that problems are more generalist and so are their answers, so that games are a little bit more predictable in that respect. How do you think about Counterspell or one of its variants in relationship to a, a disenchant? Here's another kind of answer. It's also a sort of conditional answer in that it depends on timing and so on. I love Counterspells. Uh, <laughs> I play almost <laughs> every remotely cubable version of a two-mana counterspell that exists. If it can counter any kind of spell and can cost two mana, there's a very high likelihood that you'll see it in one of my cubes. It's another answer that is conditional in a different way than the disenchant is, right? Yes. In that it's conditional based on the timing, although the description you were you had of the Winter Orb situation is, is timing dependent as well, which is one of the complaints you're voicing about Winter Orb, and fair enough. But why would you say then that the two-mana counterspell is more valuable than the disenchant? Because it can answer anything. Whether your opponent's tapping out for Garrick Wildspeaker or Damnation, 
or a winter orb, you can always cast Mana Leak in response to it and just say no. Uh, and that kind of generalist, wide-ranging answer card is really powerful in the game of Magic, especially at the price point of two mana. And it's something that really all blue decks of all macro archetypes would be interested in playing some number mm. of per draft. It's a card type that like very rarely will end up in your sideboard. Right. Uh, you could be a Simic midrange deck and have Mana Leak, and probably like 95% of the time that card's going to be in your main board. Whereas a Disenchant in a blue-white control deck, if there's not a really high density of artifacts and enchantments in the cube, then that's something that you probably just start with in your sideboard. And you bring it in when you see some totally unbeatable card like a Winter Orb or Umazawa's Jit or something along those lines. Right. So that disenchant, another common complaint about it is that it's occupying a slot in the cube, if one includes it in one's cube, that's a pretty narrow slot. Mm -hmm. This card has narrow application. One might or might not main deck it. How do you feel about, let's say, a Goblin Guide or a Lightning Bolt and how one compares these two kinds of cards where a Lightning Bolt seems to fit the description you have of the Counterspell where any red deck is going to happily play a Lightning Bolt. It's always going to be main deck material. The Goblin Guide is a much narrower card. Not every red deck is going to want to play it, of course. It really fits a pretty narrow archetype. Why run the Goblin Guide? When you're trying to support archetypes in your cube, different strategies are going to require different kinds of narrow cards. There's no such thing in Magic as a deck archetype that doesn't require narrow cards. All cards are sort of on this spectrum of narrowness versus flexibility. And on one end, you have cards like Black Lotus that will go in quite literally every deck, but you can't just play a deck of 40 copies of Black Lotus, or your deck won't actually do anything. So you uh -huh. need some sort of narrow way to utilize that effect in order to actually win the game. So with cards like Goblin Guide, they're support pieces of a critical mass base red aggro deck. Um, yes, you can't just jam Goblin Guide into your Jeskai control deck, but that's okay because it's an enabler for this other diverse strategy. So if you want to support more than a single way of playing magic in your cube, that's just the breaks. Uh, you need to include some number of narrow enablers. If you don't run any mana dorks in green, you're not going to see green decks ramping on turn one, right? Those cards just have to be there in order for those strategies to sort of take yeah, that's interesting. So there are a lot of classes of cards like that. We often talk about control decks not really caring what their win con is. They can win with whatever they can manage to pick up. So on the win con end of things, the way that they're actually winning the game um, is sort of immaterial. It doesn't have to be a narrow card that's tailored just to the control deck, although it could be, I suppose. But nevertheless, the control deck is going to have some of these narrow cards that are incredibly valuable to it that nobody else wants. So I'm thinking of a, a Wrath of God, for instance. Yeah. Uh, White Weenie does not want to play Wrath of God, as it turns out. No. Uh, it's just kind of counterintuitive <laughs> no. to your entire game plan of like, no one really wants to curve out turn one Savannah Lions, turn two Thalia, turn three Wrath My Own Board with Toxic Deluge or whatever. That's just <laughs> that's yeah. not going to win you many games. 
Yeah, and Thalia messed up that plan anyway. Oh, yeah, <laughs> she did. All right, throw wait an ancient to, tomb in to there, turn whatever, four, make no. it work. But, <laughs> yeah, um, right. No, but that's part of the point, right? I mean, Thalia is a great card in White Weenie because, it. I mean, one of the reasons it's a great card is it's pushing back that control player, taxing their mana and making them operate more slowly than they'd like to. Yeah, great card. Answer your threats more slowly than they'd like. You have a powered environment and an unpowered environment, Mm. these environments you approach really quite differently. And the lists, even if they're both 360, are they both 360 now? Is that true? I'm in the process of cutting down my 360. I'll have it up by the time this is posted at that size. Okay, nice. But if we were to compare them side by side, there are many similarities, but also they're remarkably different. There are major philosophical differences between the two environments. So I I wonder if you might talk a little bit about how you approach designing powered and unpowered lists. Sure. Um, So when it comes to my unpowered list, I take great care in sort of sculpting away non-games. I'm not really interested in having games end uh, because someone drew a turn one mana crypt and just cast a goblin rabble master on turn one. So those sorts of like extreme power outliers that directly result in the influence of game outcome, I tend to not play in that format. Whereas in the powered cube, where there's obviously literal power, um, that's not a design concern because if I'm already going to be cubing cards like Black Lotus and Mana Crypt and Strip Mine and Talarian Academy and all these like horribly, horribly broken magic cards, then the expectation of you as a player has fundamentally changed from expecting interactive back and forth games of magic to just a roller coaster of broken garbage that wizards would never print in a million years ever again into standard. Uh-huh. Right. And certainly not all in the same set together and your your crazy cube list. Yeah, exactly. No. Um, so with those cards, uh, you cultivate a very, very different environment in terms of power level. And that extreme power level at the top end dictates what is viable within that metagame. So uh, if blue decks are able to storm off and kill you on turn two with something like fast bond into a bunch of lands into wheel of fortune into god knows what into tendrils um then the very game plan of i'm gonna cast a lanowar elves on turn one then i'm gonna cast a courser of crew fix and i'm just gonna try and fairly mid-rangely beat you out of the game that's just a completely non-viable strategy that sort of extreme power at the top end of the format just totally warps everything around it and strategies that I'm able to support at a much lower power level, I'm not able to at vintage power level. Hmm. Are there some of these major pillars of magic, these macro archetypes that simply don't fly in your powered environment? So you're describing mid-range, for instance, or at least a green-based mid-range as being um, not a successful strategy. Yeah. When combo is that fast and that consistent, the metagame really demands that you be able to either race it, which you could do in the forms of like aggressive stacks pieces like Strip Mine, Wasteland, Thalia, these sorts of cards that just don't let you play the game, or you have to disrupt them with targeted discard, counter magic, instant speed spot removal, 
all three of those things stuff that green doesn't do <laughs> yeah so uh it just makes that sort of base green mid-range strategy much much weaker so i've just kind of brushed that aside said okay base green mid-range doesn't really work in vintage cube i'm not going to support it i'm not going to lead you down that unsuccessful path uh, if you want to play mid-range you'll have to play it in a color that gives you interactive pieces instead like blue or black mm. What's the most successful aggro strategy or color in the vintage environment? I would say both white and black are able to have successful aggro strategies at the very, very highest power level because, again, white has those uh, sphere effects like Thalia, Rinwing Mare, and black has a ton of targeted hand hate. So when you're up against these powerful uh, combo or control decks that are going to take over the game very, very, very quickly, um, you need ways to disrupt them off that game plan. Right. Whereas red aggro doesn't really do that. So if you ever have played Constructed Vintage, no one plays mono red uh, because you yeah. just get raced out of the game by these unfair decks just way faster than you could possibly lava spike someone out of the game. It's just not possible. Right. So uh, mono red as well is sort of just too slow for this kind of format. Right. Some of the um, controlling white pieces that can slow people down sound like they could be too slow as well. It sounds important that you have a Thalia or a Winter Orb or something online very early. Mm -hmm. There's something like Armageddon or Ravages of War or like... Hakori Dust Drinker or something, do these have a place in this kind of environment? I think they're also usually too slow. Um, and a lot of that also has to do with the density of brown mana. So right. Armageddon is really, really powerful against a control deck when all of their mana is developed lands. But if they just turn one Soul Ring Signet, it doesn't really matter whether or not you have Armageddon on turn four. Uh, the control player's already been able to develop their game plan so substantially that you're just you're not outpacing them at that point you need to be acting and disrupting them much much sooner than that uh, what role does green have to play in this environment green is actually a really powerful combo color green has a lot of different tutors worldly tutor sylvan tutor fauna shaman survival of the fittest and also has a lot of cheat effects to just directly cheat game ending threats into play fairly early on in the game because also green is the ramp color when you're accelerating with like a turn one utopia sprawl into a turn three elvish piper that you put lightning greaves on well then that emra cool that you cheat out is also gonna have haste and then you just turn it sideways and mm -hmm. kill your opponent so rather than trying to just fairly grind out your opponent with threats like garrick wild speaker or what have you you just cheat out Eldrazi or other stupid cards and just kill your opponent right. in like a turn or two. Accelerating that speed of game-ending effect as early as I possibly can. That's how green is able to sort of succeed. And there's also some support for Storm in green, right? All the enchantment ramp is really good with stuff like turnabout or time spiral because you get to double dip on that mana fast bonds a really broken card with draw sevens heartbeat of spring also lets you right. storm off but like really anything in the the fairer theater of green is just not supportable i don't think at that power level it's just it's just too easy to lose right. to like reanimator even just control just going way over the top of you with brown mana 
Control does exist, though, in the environment, it sounds like you're saying, despite the fact that you're talking about very early interaction being extremely important. What does a control deck look like? Because presumably it doesn't sit around until turn four doing nothing and then casting a wrath and then going from there, because presumably you've already lost by that. (laughs) You very well might have. Yeah. No, control definitely takes on a much more disruptive role in this kind of format. Heavy, heavy density of counter spells, instant speed removal, uh, that black targeted discard, and fundamentally broken mana accelerants. Uh, one of Control's traditional weaknesses is that it doesn't really develop anything in the early turns, and brown mana just kind of flips that on its head and says, uh, no, you're just at the late game on turn two because you started the game with a soul ring. Mm. And that allows Control to just sort of be the proactive deck in a lot of these matchups because your opponent's just instantly put on this clock. Uh, when you just cast Jace Memory Adept on turn two off of Mana Vault, your opponent just has to either kill you or answer your Jace immediately, or they're done. So Control is right. able to sort of uh, put itself in the driver's seat much, much earlier on because of these broken old magic cards. And the density of interaction is really, really high to disrupt the combo decks. How does this compare then to your unpowered environment, which you describe as, I think you've called these your powered unfair stuff and unpowered fair stuff or something like that? How how have you named these? Uh, Yeah. Yeah, right. (laughs) So you've you've been doing a fine job describing all the ways that one can do unfair things in your powered environment. What does fair magic look like to you? Uh, Well, it's fundamentally different. The speed of everything is dramatically reduced. Uh, There's no way you can win the game on turn one or turn two. Aggro decks are really only killing you by turn four or five if you just do absolutely nothing to interact with them. And there's just no way to really break the fundamental rules of magic. To me, the biggest offender of broken card or design mistake is when it gets to cheat on mana. And cheating on mana mm. to me doesn't mean Lanoir Elves letting me cast a three drop because I still had to invest that one mana to cast my Lanoir Elves. It's when you get uh, a mana advantage the turn you play that spell. So right. that would be stuff like Ancient Tomb, just like mm. breaking you ahead of where you're supposed to be at no real cost. Yeah, life total is a cost, but not really. Without those kinds of effects, it becomes much, much more difficult for decks to sort of break away from interacting in the early game. And what that means is that proactive critical mass aggro decks become a viable strategy. They don't have to be disrupting combo decks, so they can just play more efficient threats also. And um, just games become much more focused on the board state and interacting with what your opponent's developing rather than uh, trying to keep them off of some broken interaction that just ends the game on the spot. So you've rethought green entirely. You described in the power environment green. You turned over green to different ways of comboing off, different ways of cheating. And of course, that doesn't exist here. Your green section still looks quite traditional in certain respects, at least in the sense that you've got a whole bevy of mana dorks, um, like we'd expect to see in green. But then once we hit the middle of the curve, it starts to look rather different. And once we hit the top of the curve, the top of the curve uh, sort of hardly exists compared to some people's lists. 
Could you talk a little bit about how you're reconceptualizing green and trying to push mid-range and in a different direction here? Sure. So if you've ever played green in Constructed in the past 10 to 12 years, you'll notice that these sorts of big mana combo green decks don't really succeed because they're very easy to disrupt. If your entire game plan is just developing mana elves, hoping my opponent doesn't do anything, tapping my Nykthos for a bunch of green mana and then casting a Crater Hoof, yes, that can end the game, but your opponent gets a lot of time to break you off of that, right? Mm. A well-timed counterspell can just rend your top end completely useless. A board sweeper can leave you with absolutely no mana development and a hand filled with expensive cards you can't cast. Or you can just draw the wrong half of your deck. We've all had those hands in MTGO Vintage Cube where you get a turn one Llanowar Elves and then everything else you draw is Primeval Titan, Avenger of Zendikar, Crater Hoof, Woodfall Primus, uh-huh. and no way to cast them. Right. So what I've done is sort of taken the constructed green deck approach which is cultivating these far lower to the ground, more proactive, more resilient mid-range decks in my green section. I'm not really interested in cultivating the feast or famine super ramp deck. I want green to just be busting out of the gates with Alanoar Elves every game, playing a really good three drop, then playing a four mana Planeswalker, then playing a five mana Planeswalker and just crushing you under an onslaught of value. The green threats that are the most valuable to you are ones that are sticky, like a Planeswalker, Mm -hmm. that continue to produce value, like a Planeswalker does as well. So can can you give some other examples of other classes of threat or other useful abilities that green can use to combat different kinds of removal and so on? A lot of it is, as you said, these value-generating threats. That doesn't just come in the form of planeswalkers. It comes in the form of really anything that can generate value either when you play it or after it's been killed. So this would be stuff like Call of the Herd. It's a three mana, three, three that draws you a hill giant or Mouth to Feed, Mm. which is a three mana, three, three that draws you usually a harmonize. At four mana, you've got stuff like Vengevine or Trumpeting Herd that just are very difficult to stop with one-for-one removal, uh, that's really important to allowing green midrange to sort of fight through a control deck's answers. Uh, Because that's typically midrange's weak matchup, is control, right? Uh, I think the guys on Soli Singleton have talked about this in the past, where that's green's big weakness, is you play all your ramp stuff, you play your big guy, they cast Wrath of God, and now you have absolutely nothing and you're dead. And the way that you mitigate that is by giving green these small incremental value advantages that it can sort of nickel and dime a control player over the course of the game to continue to pressure them, maybe not as uh, substantially as if they just untap with an Avenger of Zendikar, but turns out if you just turn three threes sideways enough times, uh, your opponent dies anyway, so you don't have to go that big to get the game wins. Right, that's awesome. So you've got creatures and spells with flashback or rebound. You have creatures with flash, right? That lets you end step on on your opponent's turn. Yeah, Nightpack Ambusher is a hell of a magic card. Yeah, it is, right. So that helps you dodge a whole swath of 
of spot removal and wraths for that matter. Mm -hmm. You've got creatures that are sticky in other ways by virtue of having um, regeneration or hexproof. Uh, Mana sinks is like the other big way. Mm. Uh, Just being able to get more mana's worth of value out of your cheap end cards is really important to the Mm. mid-range strategy. So that'd be something like Hex Drinker. It's a one mana, two one, but you can then invest three more mana and now it's a four, four with pro instance. And then you can spend even more mana on your one drop. And now it's a progenitus. I've sort of taken that concept and gone much deeper in it than just the most premium versions of that effect. So I've got uh, the kicker Kavus, Kavu Titan and Untamed Kavu. And they start out as like grizzly bears. I think one of them has some trinket uh, abilities on it. And then you can spend three more mana on them later. Vigilance or something. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Some some trinket text. And then you can just kick more mana into them later. And now your two drop that normally would have been a brick. Right, it's awful to draw rampant growth on like turn five. Now you've just drawn a five-five vigilance trample dude, which uh, is actually going to demand an answer from your opponent. Yeah, and that's uh, actually really powerful considering that this was also a card that you could develop on turn two to start attacking a control deck or to just start immediately contesting the pressure of an aggro deck. So that kind right. of flexibility is really worth a lot to mid range. Really helps its adaptive strategy and it helps it continue to keep up the pressure even when it's drawing the bottom end of its curve in the late game. You've got all these creatures that scale well, like, um, what is it, Briar, Briar, no, Wolf Briar Elemental? Wolf, Wolf Briar Elemental? Yeah, that guy's really good. All these X spells, like uh, even Endless One and that new snake thing. Yeah, Stone um, Coil Serpent. That guy's also pretty sweet. Yeah, yeah, he is, and he's got a whole bunch of keywords on him too. That's a, that's a valuable fellow. <laughs> We're talking about this way of reimagining green as mid-range, which makes perfect sense. Mm-hmm. We're talking about mid-range threats, threats that start at about three mana and go up to, let's say, five. Yeah. Although also with these X spells that scale like we're talking about. How would you compare this kind of strategy to aggro? Because we're talking about a mid-range that is quite aggressive. Is there any way of thinking about this as an aggro deck or... What are what are differences between this um, kind of svelte mid-range and a more traditional aggro deck? I think they're fairly similar in overarching game plan in that they both want to develop threats fairly early on and turn them sideways and kill you. But the way that they do it, I think, is very different from one another. Mid-range based in green is really looking to sort of get its wheels going around turn two or three, whereas a critical mass aggro deck is looking to bust out of the gates, attacking you on turn one if it can. Mm. And that sort of difference in speed is really the big deal. As I've sort of scaled down my mana curve in my cube, you feel those differences more strongly than you would in a slower environment where aggro can maybe pass the first turn and then play a two drop and sort of still aggro you out because it's got like a top end Thundermaw Hellkite or whatever. That game plan in my cube would be the equivalent of mid-range, whereas the speed of my aggro decks is much, much, much faster. You're going to see them very rarely curving past three mana, uh, sometimes in the case Mm. of mono red, just chopping the curve off at two, almost playing like a burn strategy of just one drops, some two drops, and a bunch of burn spells, and just sort of looking to get in some chip damage very early on, and then just 
top deck stuff to go over your developed board state. Hmm. Whereas the mid-range deck is uh, sort of looking to play defense in the early turns against these really, really fast decks and then sort of turn the corner in the mid game and then start overwhelming you with a cascade of value. I think against control, they tend to play fairly similarly, except it's easier to guess out an aggro deck than it is a mid-range deck, which is just going to continue to pressure you for longer. But if mid-range stumbles in the early turns, it can be really difficult to actually close out against control because control was just given too much time by the mid-range deck's far slower clock. If you were playing one of these green mid-range decks, you would probably mulligan any hand that doesn't have an elf in it, just like you'd be inclined to mulligan any red deck wins hand that doesn't have a one-drop creature. Yeah. You have to have that, otherwise you're playing too fair. You're playing mid-range that looks like maybe what people tend to think of as more mid-range in cube, where you're not deploying significant threats until turn three or something. And obviously that can depend on the matchup, right? And whether you're on the play versus the draw. I think if you're on the draw versus control, it's a lot harder to justify keeping a hand without an accelerant. But if you're on the play and your two drop is just Duskwatch Recruiter or some fairly value intensive threat, then, you know, maybe that's going to be good enough if you have a powerful enough three drop that you can cast like an Oko or Nissa Voice Mm. of Zendikar or something. But uh, yeah, you are definitely trying to get your most your faster hands more frequently but the cube is also structured in such a way that if you drafted the archetype while it was open you should have a fairly high density of those early game mana accelerants to enact that game plan let's say you're sitting down to your own cube and you're starting in on this mono green or near mono green mid-range deck question a is what are some cards or some kinds of cards that might put you in that deck? And then question B is, if you identify that you're getting cut, where do you go from there? How do you pivot to something else? What do you pivot to? So the cards that you're looking for as enablers to be base green midrange are one mana ramp accelerants, Mm. the most premium green planeswalkers, stuff like Oko, Nissa Voice of Zendikar, these like really cheap, really, really powerful threats, and any green dual lands. Those are really, really big reasons to want to play green. And okay. I think you want to try not to play mono green if you can, because there's no interaction in mono green. So that can make your right. matchups against the control decks especially much, much weaker because you just can't answer their planeswalkers or their grave titan or whatever because you don't have any removal and as far as what i'm looking to move into when the draft goes south that really depends on like what stage of the draft we're in uh if this is still pack one let's say i took a lanoir elves then i got past an oko and then i didn't see green cards for like five more picks maybe i'm looking at what my wheel options are is there a premium aggro card in this pack like a dark confidant or eidolon of the great revel or goblin guide or something just uh, some big enabler for another strategy. Those are sorts of reasons to move into a different archetype than what you started out with. I think as a drafter, it's really important, especially in pack one, to try and keep your eyes open for what your other drafters are sending your way. Because if you see a big opening for a deck like White Weenie, you probably want to move in as early as you can And if you're delaying that uh, move until late in pack two, you can end up with a pretty poor deck. So you really just need to see these things 
early and respond in kind. Right. So don't be too concerned about like taking some mediocre green card like a Kavu Titan if you see a premium aggro card. Read that signal, move into the more open deck, and just sort of go from there. Right. Okay. That's good advice. This is the subject of a video that I just released yeah, I as saw well, good actually, stuff. which was yeah, signaling and so on. What's some advice that you would give to somebody who's looking to build a cube? Ooh. First advice is Scryfall is your best friend, and you can get excellent, excellent quality magic cards for very cheap. You do not have to spend big bucks to play with good cards. A lot of cubes that you see are only playing sort of the absolute best, most efficient versions of things, and not the class B or C, but still excellent cards. You do not need Mana Drain to make your blue decks good. You can play Syncopate. You can mm. play Rune Snag. These are still really good magic cards. And you can build an excellent, right. excellent cube, even without spending a ton of money, even without being rarity restricted, even. That's a really good point you bring up. And I wonder what you would say to somebody who's uh, maybe starting without that Mana Drain, but looking to do incremental upgrades to their cube, which I'm sure we've all done. I mean, I know I did this. I continue to do this over a long, long period of time. How concerned should they be about maintaining some consistency and power level? Um, because it seems to me you could have this cube that's full of tier B or C cards, and then you suddenly introduce a mana drain that could imbalance the environment, right? Mana drain's a much more powerful card, clearly. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's going to depend on your design goals and what you and your playgroup find fun in Magic. If your playgroup wants to play with a bunch of really broken cards, but you only have six of them, then just shove them in your cube anyway. Uh, you guys are going to have fun yeah. playing them, and you're not really going to care about the non-games that result from someone having turn one Ancient Tomb into Signet. Yeah. Is that necessarily a balanced gameplay paradigm? Probably not. But in the same way that people play Mario Kart with item boxes, and sometimes you get a star, and other times you get a green shell, you know, that's just kind of the way it goes. There's going to be that amount of randomness, and if you guys are comfortable <laughs> with that, then just keep playing it. You do you. Okay. You said Scryfall is your best friend. Um, could you expand on that a little bit? Okay. So uh, Scryfall is a website that is a database of every magic card ever printed. And you can use this website and its many filters to sort for cards to look at to get for your cube. I do this all the time when I'm looking to fill specific niches in my format or to sort of tweak and refine what I'm playing to better suit my goals. Very recently, I sort of overhauled my black and white aggro sections. I cut all of my double pipped two drops from them, hmm. and I added a bunch of flying creatures. And this was to sort of depolarize the matchup against green midrange by giving black and white aggro more ways to sort of go over the top of their blockers. Red is able to do that with burn spells. Black and white needed a way to do this of their own. And Scryfall was a huge help in this. So I went on scryfall.com, looked at the filters, uh, filtered for creatures that cost less than three mana and are white and or black, 
and have the keyword flying or shadow or horsemanship or whatever similar effects there are. Yeah. And uh, I just found a ton of decent two power creatures and I bought them on some website for like $2 because <laughs> they're, they're right. really cheap. Turns out no one is really looking to play Mistral Charger in Legacy so you can get it for really cheap. Even when it's foil. Yeah, yeah, that's cool. I saw that. I saw that you'd done that, especially with the black creatures. You've got a ton of one and a black flyers, most of which I'd never heard of. It's awesome. Yeah, uh, they look like garbage, but they're so good. I've been very, very, very happy yeah. with them. Uh, you can search for exact mana costs like that, and so on. That's good. Yeah, and, you can search uh, for any variety of effect. You know, uh, burn spells that do damage, cards that counter other cards cards that put plus one plus one counters on it if you're trying to support that kind of thing and just by looking at all of your available options uh yeah it's going to ask of you to have some sort of uh ability to analyze cards that best suit your needs but if you're able to do that then you can find a lot of great stuff out there just because a card isn't in the mtgo cube or in uh one of the cubes made by either of us here it doesn't mean it's not a good card, and it uh, doesn't mean that you can't have success with it. So uh, just be willing to try out new things. You do a fine job dredging up cards that I've never heard of before, but that work perfectly, particularly for the kind of environments that you're trying to foster. That's awesome. Where can people get a hold of you, Dan, or uh, read or watch or listen to any of your work? Okay. I guess in like the description below or in a link somewhere, we'll put a link to yeah. Alden and I, our uh, YouTube channel, MTG Cube Cats. That's where you're going to catch our podcast. Currently, we have one episode up that's on the topic of parasitism in Cube. And uh, that's a great episode. Yeah, thank you. Uh, some of the content that uh, is coming your way is uh, an episode on Xerox. So like cantrips and that sort of stuff, an episode on polarity, and uh, we'll keep some other stuff secret, but uh, there's some good stuff in there coming out for you. Also, the MTG Cube Brainstorming Discord, as John mentioned earlier in the episode, uh, that's where we're just talking cube all the time. So if you ever want to hear about why I'm trying to buy a bunch of Mistral Chargers, then that is the place to go to find <laughs> the underlying conversation for why I am so crazy about buying two unflyers for two mana. Well, thank you so much for joining me. It's been a pleasure to chat with you, Dan. Oh, thanks for having me, man. It was fun.